My name is Dakota St. Clair, and I'm joined by the two best co-hosts in the whole universe. I'm Vince. And I'm Daphne. And we are here today with a fabulous m for you, a smorgasbord, if you will, Ooh. of, I won't, I've already eaten. Um, Sesquipedillion. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about saints. Um, we got some really great feedback from y'all uh, about our St. Joan of Arc episode, which was the M4 episode before the last concept episode. And this week is yeah. our concept episode after per, uh, Demeter, Persephone, and Hecate. So we are going to do a deep dive in all the things that came up in those three episodes in our main episode, which is out Friday. But today Ooh. we're going to talk about some saints that are a little off, a little weird, <laughs> a little light in the loafers. You know, mm-hmm, he makes a mm-hmm. fabulous flower that... arrangement. Uh, okay, yes, I don't yes. actually know what that means. So, does it have anything to do with dancing? A little light in the loafers. I... Yeah, that's what I would assume that means. Is yes, that it, does. It, means? It... it does. It oh, does. Okay. Cool. Every time he opens his mouth, a purse falls out. It means he works at uh, the purse kiosk in the mall. Mm-hmm, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So. Um, in this episode, our show is now called When God Was Working at a Purse Kiosk in the Mall. Yes, 100%. What if God was one of us? Uh, We can't call it that. That's actually too legally close to an anime that already exists and has two seasons. Well, fuck everything. Sorry, what is it called? Um, uh, the devil is a part time, or like the devil's a part timer. Huh. Is that close? Well, yeah, when God worked at, I don't know, it's like legally pretty close. It's like a similar, I don't know. When God had the swing shift. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in today's episode, we're going to be doing a deep dive into the wide world of ascetics and anchorites, hermits and holy fools, monks and martyrs, and the many among their ranks who seem to live and love just like us. So uh, we have already covered St. Joan of Arc. So we're going to start today with one of my favorites, Julian of Norwich. The very first thing you need to know about Julian of Norwich is that there are two types of depictions you'll find of her. The bent neck lady and sassy woman with a sassy cat. But that's not how she's... (laughs) But that's not how she scored a great spot on this list. For starters, as far as anyone can tell, she's the very first woman to write a book in English, which has survived to the present day. When Julian was in her early 30s, she became so seriously ill that she believed she was on her deathbed. And it was during this time that she experienced a succession of 16 visions of the Passion of the Christ. She went on to recover and documented her experiences in her book, Revelations of Divine Love. Julian of Norwich lived from 1343 to circa 1416 AD and was an English anchorite. As one of the earliest forms of monastic life, an anchorite is similar to a hermit, but instead of leaving civilization altogether, they would leave the secular world to live in a cell that was usually built adjoining the church. They actually had to undergo a rite of consecration, which was akin to a funeral, as they would, once in place, be dead to the world and be considered a sort of living saint. Their life would, from that point on, be intensely ascetic, being prayer and Eucharist-focused. As an anchorite... Dark souls shit. Yeah, I mean, they literally (laughs) would just just brick a square, like, touching on the church, and the person would just be in there. Like, probably terrible, like, living conditions-wise, but, like, as an idea, that's pretty sick. Speaking of anchorites, one of my, just sidebar, one of my favorite saints of all time is St. Viridiana, who is known as the foster mother of vipers. 
Okay. Oh, sick. Yeah. What is her name? So, St. Viridiana. I like that she's the foster mother. Literally, she's like, I can't give birth to vipers, but I'll take care of them. That's <laughs> like, literally let me such be a sensible. Life. I preached yeah. to a pair of vipers. She's and like, talked I'm about a Jesus. human, but. Give birth to them? Let's be serious. <laughs> exactly. That's like so, literally such a like arc druid name. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> like, absolutely. Viridiana. So basically, well. she was an anchorite and she lived in a tiny cell that was built for her, joined to a church. And when she entered, she never left. And she had a tiny window that was left open so that she could receive food and confession and people could talk to her. People from the village would come and like consult with her and ask her for advice and she would pray with them. And basically she lived there for 34 years until she died. Jesus. And the thing is during that time, no living human saw her. Yeah. She would talk to people, but she would never be visible. There's no through. window. Yeah. The way it's described is like it was literally they left one brick out so she could be heard. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Yeah. So it's basically crazy. it said that they didn't realize until after she was dead and they took the the shelter down that she was not alone in there because there were two vipers with her. Oh, my God. She apparently would share her meals, which were literally just like holy water in the Eucharist with them. Apparently, she was very fond of them, and no one knew about them except for her confessor. But she swore her confessor to secrecy. That's wild. Yeah. So she had developed a reputation as like a holy woman. There's a lot of miracles associated with her, mostly centered around healing. And it was said that even St. Francis of Assisi came to consult with her and learn from her, which is wild. Um, She apparently died while kneeling in prayer. And at the moment of her death, the bells of the church that she was joined to began ringing spontaneously. Uh, And so, yeah, basically they carried her in procession, her body... Um, they would touch her body and, you know, sort of became like a holy relic because then all of a sudden all these people were having, like, their sight restored, their wounds healed, things like that, paralysis relieved, all of those things. Uh, She was unofficially a saint for um, a while until, like, the 1500s. And she is a really great ally if you're trying to deal with um intrusive or like malevolent or evil spirits and getting Mm. them out of your house wow Mm. or if you are trying to ward off fire it's also a thing that would be like you'd have to do that really fast like yeah like your house is going on fire and you're like please say like (laughs) you only have like a couple seconds (laughs) (laughs) so basically there is a skull of one of the vipers near her grave and the other one was never found so like one stayed with her oh and one left but may still be with her in terms of it being like spiritual i guess or like going into the underworld with her so yeah so basically she's wild um it said that you know like she preached to them um and all of that so like you'll see if you ever see she's very limited iconology but if you see her it's usually like a nun in like a brick room preaching to two vipers that are like weird up on right. their tails and looking listening at her. to her that's cool i wonder if there's any like anyone has ever done any connection to um the like caduceus or caduceus mm. or the caduceus. minoan snake goddess I was or you the know same what i mean like it's, about yeah. the it's a thing like she's yeah, like she is italian and she's like southern healing. italian yeah healing double snake medicinal healing yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so that's another example of an anchorite one of my absolute favorites so going that's back to really julian cool. of norwich she was an anchorite um and basically as an anchorite julian preferred to write anonymously she wrote very prolifically she remained isolated from the world uh, but she had a strong relationship with a number of sisters in the benedictine and Brigitine orders who diligently guarded her writings until they could finally be published after the Protestant Reformation and its aftershocks in 1670, more than 200 years after her death. And she is still considered today to be a deeply influential Christian mystic and theologian. The Catechism itself quotes from her work, even though she was never formally beatified or canonized. However, she is still called Saint, Holy, Blessed, and or Mother Julian, and has an official feast day each year on May 13th. So, 
Why are we talking about her? What's possibly queer about this? Well, first of all, her story is as relevant in this moment as ever since she was basically full-time social distancing. She became an anchorite on the heels of the Black Plague and its many resurgences. And this not only gave her a shot at living through the chaos, but it also gave her a refuge from it. Second, her writings and her visions? Not exactly the most on-brand stuff for the church. She referred to the Holy Spirit solely as she, her, repeatedly invoked Mother God and Mother Father God, and had ecstatic visions of breastfeeding at the chest of Christ. She lived during a tumultuous time of plague, uprisings, and panic, which makes her characterizations of God as an omnibenevolent entity that is full of love, compassion, and joy all the more striking because most of the characterizations at the time were a lot more brimstone focused, if you will. Mm. Right. And she consistently likened these traits to the love of a mother, specifically making the point that God is our quote, father and our mother. In her 14th vision, she paints the Tridentine Godhead as a domestic order with Jesus as wise, merciful and loving mother saying that the relationship between a mother and a child is the only relationship which we may have with christ speaking of this relationship in terms of how christ conceives carries gives birth breastfeeds weans and raises uh, raises us up Hmm. julian of norwich was not totally alone in that cell given how wise well-spoken and compassionate she was plenty of people came to her seeking counsel It wasn't much of a social call, though, as they had to talk to her through a tiny slot, again, where a brick had been left out. But she did have somebody with her in the cell. It's not snakes this time. Guess what it is? If you were listening earlier to her icon, you know. It's a cat. Oh. Because she's the sexy lady. She has the sexy lady with the sexy cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Cats were the only companion allowed for anchorites. Uh, since they were ratters, which was especially important uh, during the Black Plague. Yeah. And this has led many to call her the patron saint of cats. Interesting. Cute. Mm-hmm. During one of her most vivid experiences, she said that Jesus came and spoke to her, making this pronouncement, which would later become known colloquially as Julian's Prayer. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well which nice. you know Lovely. to the point uh positive very you know, like know. affirming <laughs> uh moving on from julian we meet our next saint wiljefortis this is one of my all-time favorite stories and one of the stories which led to the birth of this podcast and it is the story of saint wiljefortis who is also called saint liberata or saint uncumber Her tale comes to us from the early Middle Ages, in which she was a well-known and beloved princess of Portugal, blessed with beauty and brains to boot. Everything was going just fine. She had a great life, and Wiltefortis decided at some point to become a Christian, but because of those big, mean, nasty pagans, she had to do it in secret. This probably wouldn't have amounted to much, but her pagan father had just settled the negotiations for her dowry with the king of Sicily. And that just couldn't happen. Wiljefortis, like many other saints uh, share in their stories, and her secret conversion to Christianity had dedicated her virginity to Christ and taken a vow of chastity, wishing to live a uh, cloistered religious life. So our girl starts praying every single night. She's on her knees praying over and over earnestly and fervently, God, please call the wedding off. Please stop it from happening. But each day, she wakes up one day closer to the wedding, and she sees no relief in sight. But still, every night, she prays and prays. Finally, it is the night before the wedding, and Wiltefortis kneels down in prayer. She beseeches Christ, saying, Please, Lord, if you won't cancel the wedding, just make me so ugly that the king of Sicily will take one look at me and run away in terror. Bingo. She wakes up the next morning, and she has... The long beard of a hermit. Yeah. Reaching all the way down to her waist. As soon as her handmaidens arrive to prepare her for the wedding, all hell breaks loose. They're screaming. One lady's hair turns white. They're running around like chickens with their heads chopped off. One of them throws herself out a window. But one of them is coherent enough to rush to the king's side and tell him what has happened. The king of Portugal rushes to see his daughter and almost falls dead at the sight of her. He calls out for the royal barber. 
The barber comes to his aid, but his blades are no match for this divine beard. Oh my God, I uh. love this. It's soft and flaxen to the touch, yet when the barber tries to cut or shave it, it's as if the beard were made of stone. Awesome. Finally, his best blades broken on the floor. The king decides that he's got a plan, and he must be a long-term planner because he immediately has a floor-length veil thrown over her head. What? I'm not sure how this was supposed to help, but the wedding commences, and everyone is then, of course, <laughs> stunned when the bride appears in her floor-length veil. How royal, how pomp and circumstance of her. My goodness, she's so devout. The wedding goes off without a hitch until they are to kiss. The king of Sicily throws back the veil, screams like a little bitch in brutal shock horror, and runs away from the proceedings <laughs> into the forest, screaming into the night, whatever. He runs for his life, and the wedding is off. So what does her very disappointed father do? Well, the only logical thing, of course, my friends, he has her crucified. Oh, my oh. Fucking Wait, hell. what? For having a beard. That means <laughs> there are multiple depictions of her martyrdom, which basically looks exactly like Jesus Christ, but wearing a girdle and a dress on a cross. Wow. Uh... Yeah. So how do you tell them apart? Well, one of her shoes is usually hanging off and there's a dog barking up at her. That's usually how you can tell it's her. Whoa. Crazy. Uh, anyway, she's in charge of a lot of stuff, but her main theme is liberation. It's said that she can be called upon for liberation from all forms of oppression, pain, difficult childbirth, prison, uh, abusive relationships. But most of all, she's called upon by women to be liberated from men. And her feast day is celebrated each year on July 20th. So next month, on July 20th, if there are some men that you want freedom from, you can talk to St. Wilgefortis. Next, we have St. Sebastian. St. Sebastian, y'all, is a true blue, dyed-in-the-wool gay icon. St. Sebastian is one of the most easily recognizable saints of all time. He is the one that is depicted as naked or nearly naked, bound to a tree, and pierced with multiple arrows. I'm sure you've seen him before. There's also the very famous... Is it Time magazine cover that Muhammad Ali did in the same exact pose? It's a great image. Just like his image, like, you know, covered in the arrows is like iconic. I feel like oh, in so, so many places. Yeah. And he's a total babe. That's the Oh, thing. yeah. He's you always know, like have, buff he's and like, beautiful. And... Mm -hmm. Traditionally, he's the patron saint of archers, athletes, and soldiers, as well as the special protector against the plague. However, since the Renaissance, he has at least unofficially been the patron saint of homoeroticism in its many forms. It said that Sebastian was an Adonis-esque beauty who captured the heart of the Roman emperor Diocletian. Pause. If you don't know already, Diocletian was the emperor who was like, wait a minute, where the fuck did all these Christians come from? Oh, they're trying to replace <laughs> our gods? Kill them all immediately, please, and thank you. <laughs> you might think I'm you might think I'm joking, but no, literally hundreds of Christians were martyred during the Diocletian persecution, which like, you know, make Rome great again. It's, you know, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. If you if you will. Use the Colosseum for its original purpose. Let's go. So if if Diocletian was so I, I'm you know, I'm just one of those people who's like, yes, guillotines for the rich. Colosseum for the Christians. I'm absolutely okay with that. You know, they already think they're persecuted. Great. Prove them right. You know what I mean? A so, end. Yeah. Um. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, if Diocletian was so in love with Sebastian, what was the issue? Well, one day, Sebastian decided to defend a pair of Christians from the Roman soldiers who were tormenting them. Diocletian may have loved Sebastian, but not as much as he hated this new religion. So he gave him one <laughs> chance to rectify the situation and commanded him to kill the pair of Christians. Sebastian refused. The pair were slaughtered in front of him, and Diocletian ordered Sebastian's own archers to slay him. Oh. He actually survived this low-tech firing squad, but was then beaten to death shortly after. Oh. Yeah. He was so long celebrated as a patron of gay lovers by so many artists and creators in their works in art and in culture that it's no surprise that he took on a new role in the late 20th century when in the late 80s and early 90s there was a mass following which developed of gay men praying to St. Sebastian for relief and protection from the AIDS epidemic. This was seen as an extension of his role as protector from the plague. Interesting. Yeah. 
Now, let's jaunt over to Ireland, where we'll meet St. Abin. St. Abin was an Irish Catholic saint from the 5th century CE who was said to be an expert diviner, healer, and miracle worker. He counseled an older, an older couple who had long prayed for a child. In a familiar refrain, they were finally blessed with a child, yet they were aggrieved to see that their child was assigned female at birth. It's important to understand just how vital a male heir is to the father in a patriarchal socio-religious context. So they weren't just praying for a child, they were praying for a vessel through which their name and legacy could be carried on. Patriarchy reinforces it through its ability to promise some form of in immortality to men through their placement in society and their identification with their father's lineage. So our boy, Abin, hears about the old couple and their baby and pays them a visit. He performed a blessing upon the baby, making the sign of the cross, and miraculously changed the baby from female to male. Oh, what? This story is important because it's much less about Abin's own abilities and much more about a foundational Christian belief. Whether or not one believes in saints, one believes in the possibility of miracles in just about any Christian sect. The thing is, according to Christian doctrine and its many interpretations, miracles are only possible if two things happen. A, the miracle is powered by God, and B, the miracle is part of God's plan, a.k.a. God has to consent. Which means one could potentially use this story as a point in arguing for the existence of trans people as part of God's plan. Hmm. Uh, Abin is, like many Irish Catholic saints, uh, has very clear evidence that he is a pre-Christian Irish god. However, his patronage seems unclear. It seems like, just like pretty much any other pre-Christian god of Ireland, he is linked with rivers and wells, but we don't know much beyond that. Hmm. And speaking of pre-Christian gods, next we have Saint Fotin. Ooh. Or Futin, or Fotin, I don't know. The Christianized, sanctified incarnation of, buckle up, Priapus. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. what? Priapus. Remember Priapus, yeah. the Roman phallic be, god? Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. How is yeah. this going to be explained? So in his home in Asia Minor, <laughs> Priapus was a major warlike god, a rustic tutor to the infant Ares, who he taught first how to dance and second how to wage war. Priorities. Yeah. However, as his cult spread and varied, so did the reception that he'd be met with. His image and veneration was not taken very seriously by urban dwellers. More on that in a second. However, to country dwellers, he played two major roles. First, he was the major force in apotropaic magic, warding off the evil eye with his giant phallus. He was the patron god of sailors and fishermen and would bestow good luck upon them. Second, and much more broadly, Priapus was a minor rustic fertility god who joined the ranks of Pan and the satyrs as a spirit of fertility and growth and a protector of livestock, fruit gardens, and in his case, genitalia. Priapus is best known for his iconic depictions as a hirsute man with a giant erect phallus, which he usually holds up using a set of scales. His name is actually the root of, uh, for priapism, the medical term for an erection which will not naturally ebb. So, how the hell did he become a French saint? Well, <laughs> shockingly, Priapus stayed around for quite a while, well after the fall of Rome and the rise of Christianity. From the Mediterranean to the more northern parts of Western Europe, he was regularly invoked in gardens and homes as a symbol of health and fertility, as well as an apotropaic guardian. At a major church in the southeast of France, there was a large sculpted phallus, which was referred to as a relic of St. Fotin. F-O-U-T-I-N. Fotin, hmm. I don't know. The faithful would pour wine over the sculpture's head. A sacred vessel beneath it would catch the wine, and the fluid that built up was called holy vinegar. It was widely believed what? to be an effective treatment in order to, re to remedy cases of sterility and impotence. Around the same time, records show a man in northern England erecting a statue of Priapus amidst a devastating outbreak of cattle disease. So you see, his influence was far-reaching. He was believed to have a major influence in restoring fertility to barren women and vigor and virility to impotent men. At Varian Provence, waxen images of genitalia were offered to St. Fochen and suspended to the ceiling of his chapel. One commentator from the time stated that a common practice in some churches was to offer breads and cakes in the same shapes. Pierre de l'Estoile commented that as the ceiling was covered with these waxen images, the wind would blow about them, producing quite a startling display. <laughs> what? 
cool. Saint Fotin, whose name is derived from the archaic French word for fuck, was worshipped <laughs> in France, often in the form of phallic pillars, until at least the end of the 16th century. Well, that's wow. a long time. Yeah. yeah, he was allegedly a major icon of veneration for the gender variant, homoerotically inclined King Henri III of France. Huh. Yeah. Uh, next, we have St. Augustine, uh, one of the most famous converts to Christianity. Augustine revealed in his confessions that he had loved and may have been intimate with another man. The relationship, in fact, was so strong, according to Augustine, that he considered suicide after the unnamed man's death. Oh, wow. St. Bernard of Clairvaux is another that we'll tackle in Abbot in medieval France. Bernard of Clairvaux maintained a lengthy personal relationship with the Archbishop Malachi, according to gay liberation theologian Richard Cleaver. After Malachi, an Irishman who also later became a saint, died in Bernard's arms, Bernard wore the fallen religious leader's habit for his remaining years. Upon his own death, Bernard was buried alongside Malachi on church grounds. Hmm. Yeah. Then we have St. Juan de la Cruz, uh, a 16th century Spanish saint known most for his coining the phrase, the dark night of the soul. Hmm. And he was an he was an accomplished poet, as you can tell from that phrase. He was prone to using homoerotic imagery in his works, the best known example being his poem On a Dark Night, in which he lays enraptured in Christ's arms. Ooh. Here's the end of that poem. Upon my flowery breast kept holy for himself alone, there he stayed sleeping, and I caressed him, and the fanning of the cedars made a breeze. The breeze blew from the turret as I parted his locks. With his gentle hand, he caressed my neck and caused all my senses to be suspended. I remained lost in oblivion. My face, I reclined on the beloved. All ceased and I abandoned myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. Wow. And if you don't think that that's gay and sexual enough, don't yeah. forget that in traditional Catholic iconology, the lily is the flower that uh, virgin saints hold. Oh, my. Yeah. Then we have St. Albertanus and Romeo. Yes, there is a St. Romeo. Around the year 1370, a monk named Albertanus and his faithful companion Romeo were on a pilgrimage from France to Rome, during which they would stop to pray at any and every church they came across. At some point, the pair fell dangerously ill with the Black Plague. They would go on to die within a week of one another. So oh. devout was their love for one another that they were not only buried in the same coffin, but they were buried on church grounds. In more recent oh, wow. years, they joined the ranks of saints believed to be most helpful against the AIDS epidemic. Interesting. Same coffin, huh? I was yeah, like, cool, together. prayer crawl, and then they died. Yeah, that's oh. pretty fat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have St. Simonism, which is less about a saint and more about a movement in a saint's name. Mm -hmm. St. Simonism was a French utopian movement, which occurred in the 18th and 19th mm -hmm. centuries. It was largely based on the ideas of Claude-Henri de Rouvroy, Comte de Saint-Simon, who was ahead of his time in many ways. In 1814, he predicted the formation of the European Union, just hmm. as like one example. However, in his telling, it would be England who would lead its formation. Guess he didn't hear about Brexit. <laughs> he was also <laughs> quite influential in the development of socialism, essentially positing that religion's new role in an industrialized West was the codification and maintenance of brotherly love as the central tenet of political and economic systems. St. Simon was also deeply influential when it came to spiritual matters. In fact, his works greatly influenced the development of spiritualism and occultism from about the 1850s onward. He would often refer to and revere God as androgynous or a mixed-gender mother-father figure. Hmm. He would even extrapolate this to the point of deducing the androgen as a representation and an embodiment of social harmony and the emancipation of women, even advocating for children to be raised without gender. Hmm. St. Simone's primary concern was the true equality and shared dignity of all peoples, and he made many inroads to the developments which helped realize socialism as a worthwhile cause. Hmm. After that, we have Cardinal Alessandro Albani. 
Cardinal Albani was a bad bitch. He was born mm -hmm. in 1692 and spent most of his early life preparing for a major career in the military. However, by the time he was coming of age to make this big decision, his eyesight had already begun weakening. He would end up being totally blind by old age, but this early development is what derailed his military aspirations and led to him becoming a man of the cloth. This wasn't a difficult decision. His uncle was Pope Clement the Eleventh, and his brother oh. was also a cardinal. So, you know, family business and all. Oh. <laughs> He used his position and his wealth to become one of the most vital and influential antiquarians of his day. He was basically the aficionado of the Roman sculpture and was a very powerful force in the arts, acting as a patron and a collector of great works. Albani served as the, as the librarian of the Holy Roman Church from 1761 to his death Whoa. in 1779, during which he made major contributions to the collected works and their organization and accessibility. His worldly manner made him a major force in another area, diplomacy. Hmm. He was able to play a key role in many negotiation scenarios between warring nations and attempts at conquest. Cardinal Albani's greatest achievement had to be the Via Albani. Construction began in 1751. It was completed in 1763, 12 years later. The palace was built by Carlo Marchioni, a profoundly gifted sculptor and a virtuoso draftsman. Marchioni was a lifelong friend to Albani, and both were prominent fixtures in the artistic and intellectually elite circles of Roman society at the time. Via Albani did not just house and showcase the constantly evolving collection that the Cardinal had dedicated his life to. It was also home to a gorgeous park where two temples sat, one of which was an Ionic temple to Diana. Ooh. Albani's collection was so extensive that it led to his employing the first professional art historian, Johann Joachim Winkelmann. The Via was also home to a secret circle of passionate male friends and lovers, including Marchioni, Winkelmann, and others. These men were an intellectual and artistic elite in the great tradition of Roman antiquity, and they celebrated at these gatherings by performing acts and rituals of devotion to Pan and Priapus, as well as Hadrian and his lover Antinius. Oh. Which means we get to talk about Hadrian. In many ways, Albani had something quite Hadrian-esque about him. Hadrian was a Roman emperor from 117 to 138 AD, and he's most famous for Hadrian's Wall. I often think that we would have ruled similarly if I had ever really given a serious shot at the emperor business. <laughs> he is counted among the five good emperors, a small group of rulers <laughs> whose reigns were characterized by Machiavelli as being, quote, under the guidance of wisdom and virtue. Hmm. These were benevolent monarchs, and their moderate policies drew a stark contrast with the often tyrannical and oppressive authoritarians who populated the ranks of emperors throughout Rome's history. Basically, Hadrian was not about the expansionist greed which had marked his most recent predecessors, preferring to shore up stable, defensible borders, and even more so, attempt to unify the empire's quite disparate peoples. One of the ways that he went about this was leaving Rome often, doing what he could to visit the entire empire. Everywhere he went, he personally designed and implemented civil and religious investments in our infrastructure. He, uh, his devotion to the unity of Rome led to his rebuilding the Pantheon and the magnificent Temple of Venus and Roma. He was a big fan of anything Greek and was keen on making Athens the cultural capital of the empire, investing in many stunning temples and grand buildings there. It wasn't just the Greek art he loved. He had such a passionate, devoted relationship with a Greek named Antinius that it inspired works by great poets of the time. After Antinius' untimely, tragic death, Hadrian had him immortalized and venerated as a god. Statues of him in various local styles of dress were erected throughout the empire. In Athens, there were festivals held in his honor and oracles were delivered in his name. Hadrian was consistently devoted to Greece as the spiritual hearth of Rome, and his devotion paid off. By his third and final visit to Greece, Hadrian himself had become the object of religious fervor. The people had deified him and dedicated monuments to his name alongside his lover, Antinius. As for the Grand Temple to Venus in Roma, the temple was the largest in Rome and was built in a Hellenic style, more Greek than Roman. 
The temple's dedication and statuary associated the worship of the traditional Roman goddess Venus, divine ancestress and protector, protectress of the Roman people, with the worship of the goddess Roma, herself a Greek invention, previously worshipped only in the provinces, to emphasize the universal nature of the empire. Overall, Hadrian was a generous, benevolent ruler who only sought to bring together the far-flung empire in a collective whole, and he saw religious experience as the way to do this. Interestingly, he was moderate even on this. For example, he refused to persecute the early Christians. He would not seek them out. They would only be punished for specific explicit offenses, such as a refusal to swear oaths. Other than a single major uprising he was forced to quell, his reign was characterized by peace. Then we have Madre Juana de la Cruz, a 16th century Spanish abbess who would insist in her lifetime that God had changed her gender in the womb from male to female. Her sermons would similarly depict a gender-bending version of Christ and God, sometimes so controversial, even in her own time, that the church would cut short her beatification. Wow. She has since become celebrated and revered by the trans community, and in 2015, Pope Francis restored her venerable status. Hmm. But please don't take that as a note or a point for Pope Francis, no. <laughs> who said that trans people are as dangerous as nuclear weapons. So, oh. yeah, he's a fucking asshole. Just like all of them. Then we have Pope Joan. Pope Joan might sound a little interesting to you. <laughs> there was apparently a lady pope, everybody. Pope Joan was, according to legend, a woman who reigned as pope for a few years during the Middle Ages. This seems simple enough. Her story first appeared in Chronicles in the 13th century and subsequently spread throughout Europe. The story was widely believed for centuries, but most modern scholars regard it as fictional. Most versions of her story describe her as a talented and learned woman who disguised herself as a man, often at the behest of a lover or her father. In the most common accounts, due to her abilities, she rose through the church hierarchy and was eventually elected pope. Her sex was only revealed when she gave birth during a papal procession. Wow. And she died shortly after, either through murder or natural causes. Oh, my. Yeah. The accounts state that later church processions avoided this spot and that the Vatican removed the female pope from its official lists and crafted a ritual to ensure that future popes would all be indeed male. Yikes. Yeah. In the 16th century, Siena Cathedral featured a bust of Joan, among other pontiffs, but it was removed after protests in 1600. Here are some of the clearest accountings on Pope Joan by accomplished historians on the matter. First, we have Martin of, of Opava in his Chronicon Pontificum et Imperatorum. Quote, John Anglicus, born at Mainz, was pope for two years, seven months, and four days, and died in Rome, after which there was a vacancy in the papacy of one month. It is claimed that this John was a woman who, as a girl, had been led to Athens dressed in the clothes of a man by a certain lover of hers. There she became proficient in a diversity of branches of knowledge until she had no equal, and afterward in Rome she taught the liberal arts and had great masters among her students and audience. A high opinion of her life and learning arose in the city, and she was chosen for Pope. While Pope, however, she became pregnant by her companion. Through ignorance of the exact time when the birth was expected, she delivered a child while in procession from St. Peter's to the Lateran in a lane once named Via Sacra, the Sacred Way, but now known as the Shunned Street between the Colosseum and St. Clement's Church. After her death, it is said that she was buried in that same place. The Lord Pope always turns aside from this street, and it is believed by many that this is done because of his abhorrence to the event. Nor is she placed on the list of the Holy Pontiffs, both because of her female sex and on account of the foulness of the matter. End quote. Uh, next quote from Jean de Mailly from the Chronica Universal Universalis Metensis. Query concerning a certain pope, or rather female pope, who is not set down in the list of popes or bishops of Rome because she was a woman who disguised herself as a man and became by her character and talents a, cur a curial secretary, then a cardinal, and finally pope. One day, while mounting a horse, she gave birth to a child. Immediately, by Roman justice, she was bound by the feet to a horse's tail and dragged and stoned by the people for half a league, and where she died... There she was buried, and at the place is written, Petri, Pater, Patrum, Papise, Prodito, Partum. 
oh Potter, oh Peter, father of fathers, betray the childbearing of the woman Pope. At the same time, the four-day fast, called the Fast of the Female Pope, was first established. And lastly, from Petrarch, it is Chronica de la Vita de Pontifici et Imperadori Romani. Quote, in Brescia, it rained blood for three days and nights. In France, there appeared marvelous locusts, which had six wings and very powerful teeth. They flew miraculously through the air and all drowned in the British Sea. The golden bodies were rejected by the waves of the sea and corrupted the air so that a great many people died. And this is supposed to be what happened after the right. Pope gave birth gave in the birth. middle of the street. So, like, be, this is God's judgment. A late 14th century edition of the Mirabilia Urbis Romae, a guidebook for pilgrims to Rome, tells readers that the female pope's remains are buried at St. Peter's. At his trial in 1415, Jan Hus argued that the church does not necessarily need a pope because during the pontificate of Pope Agnes, as he called her, it got on quite well. Hus's opponents at his trial insisted that his argument proved no such thing about the independence of the church, but they did not dispute that there had been a female pope at all. Um, so, yeah, basically, her story and images were immortalized in the Taroki decks of the late Renaissance period, which would lead to the, for the creation of, they're like the blueprint for the modern tarot deck that we recognize today. But before the modern tarot deck was sort of streamlined by the Rider Waite deck that was published circa 1910, um, the card was not called the High Priestess. In all of the decks preceding it, it was called La Papesse. Or La Papessa, which means the Lady Pope. Or That's the what it is pope. in my in my deck. Oh. Yeah. The fact that La Papess was meant to depict Pope Joan is essentially a long, yeah. settled matter. However, at certain points, there have also been several popularly espoused theories as for who La Papessa might be. One of my favorite contenders is Sister Guglielma, an Italian noblewoman of the 13th century. She practiced and preached an alternative, feminized version of Christianity, in which she predicted the end of time and her own resurrection as the Holy Spirit incarnate. She is now oh. the unofficial patron saint of Brunati. Apparently a widow, she adopted the life of a Pinzacera. A Pinzacera is a religious woman living independently in her own home, much like the Beguines of uh, Northern Europe. In Milan, she soon attracted disciples from the elite classes of the city, as well as among the Umiliati, a lay urban religious movement that operated on the fringes of heresy. When she died sometime between 1279 and 1282, her body was buried in the Cistercian Monastery at Chiara Valley. The burial site soon became a shrine and a cult sprang up around her. The Guglielmites, as they became known, were led by a sister of the Umiliati movement, Maifreda da Piovano, who was elected their pope and performed mass over Guglielma's grave. Their creed declared that Guglielma's resurrection would herald a new church led by women and, at, at, and that at the year 1300, the male papacy would forever end and the female papacy would begin. For obvious reasons, this attracted the attention of the Inquisition. So in, thir in 1300, 30 Guglielmites were charged with heresy. Guglielma herself was posthumously condemned on the basis of a confession almost certainly extracted by torture from Andrea Saramita, one of Guglielma's most fervent disciples during her lifetime. But that wasn't enough. They didn't just condemn her. They actually dug her up and then burned her remains along with three oh. of her devotees, including Maifreda. Um, wow. No. So, yeah. Um, the, just the last but not least, just, we don't even have a whole thing. I just want to mention her. Christina the Astonishing. If you haven't heard of her, she's like absolutely one of my favorite holy figures of all time. She falls under the category of holy fool. Um, she was an incredibly devout young woman who holy suffered fool. from epilepsy. Mm. And she... Uh, would have really horrible seizures and during which she would have these ecstatic visions and she was this sort of tortured little girl. She somehow survives to the age of 21. She has a grand mal seizure. She dies. Angels collect her soul, fly her through hell and then purgatory and up to the throne room of God where God goes, you want door number one or door number two? You can stay here with me and just hang out or you can go back to Earth 
and you can perform miracles in my name and that'll get people out of purgatory. And she's like, I want door number two. Send me back. So the angels grab her by the arms. They fly her back out of heaven, through purgatory, through hell, and onto earth. And then they slam her back down in her body. Well, she's always been one for timing. I'll say that about Christina the Astonishing. Because it was in the middle of her funeral. Which up until that point was a closed oh, casket. Oh, shit. She's like, whoop. She explodes yeah. out of her casket, <laughs> levitates to the ceiling of the cathedral, and screeches down at everyone present that she can come no closer to the ground because of the stench of their sin filling her nostrils. Damn. <laughs> what? <laughs> so what about all those miracles that she was like supposed That's to perform? Yeah. Wait, no, 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 no. Her no, miracles on. were a sideshow. She would run through the town square being chased by a pack of wolves who were ripping out chunks of her flesh and then would dive into a thorn bush head first to get away from them and then show back up like 20 minutes later on the town square completely fine not knowing what anybody was talking about oh my god <laughs> she would throw herself into furnaces and scream in agony for hours and hours and then just like emerge across town completely like no smoke no burns no nothing I don't know what she's a about. prankster what yeah She's a fucking edgelord is what she is. Yeah, what the hell? She would, when the river was frozen, she would find a place where it was broken, throw herself in, and then go under the icy water, right? The frozen surface. She'd go down the river until she got her legs stuck into the mill and then basically would have her body broken apart over and over again as she would get taken by the mill and go under the water and then above the water screaming, that one's too much. screaming, screaming, under the water. Over the water, ah, ah, and like just getting mangled, and then would appear later on, no problem. Uh, she also needed time alone, so she would That's... literally float and levitate above treetops in prayer, what? just like in solitude, because she like needed her alone time. This is the weirdest. She's I like a Saiyan. love her. <laughs> I love yeah. her. I think she needs to be made the patron saint of performance artists. Yeah, for real. I think she's just the greatest. Um, she is Christina the Astonishing. Wow. She's pretty astonishing. She even has a sideshow name. I was going to say, she literally sounds like a magician. When you said that, I was like, yeah. it's not a magician? Yeah. No. She basically yeah. is a magician. A little bit. A little yeah. bit. Okay, yeah. but we did skip over the part where she can't come down from the stench of their sin a little too quickly. Uh, yeah, I wanted to make sure we circle That's back to that. Yeah. Sick. That, that is, is a whole mood. She came, also like, came I, back from the dead just like spewing fucking like disses. Yeah, like, just like, vile just hatred like, at everyone. Yeah. Present. Her if family, ever, her friend, everyone she's ever known is in this fucking cathedral. And she's of your sin. reaching at them. Suck. Yeah. If I've ever Amazing. heard a Lamb of God lyric, like <laughs> okay it's all right that's that, i also just the idea of them all being like oh man that like our our christina's gone that really we're all sad and then explosion and yeah. then i cannot come. yeah i guess it makes sense if she was like had such a shitty childhood where she was like sick but also having to have these fucking visions and finally she's like oh i went up there and now i'm coming back like on my own terms and i i'm like i'm not sick anymore now i'm just gonna do crazy shit i got oh, permission 100 percent. like yeah she's like fuck all of you for making me do this said, but she totally doesn't have epilepsy when she comes back uh, it kind of sounded like that's what i assumed i figured yeah, yeah which I'm like, oh, okay, so you like leveled up, yeah, on the yeah. theatrics, yeah, I guess because it wasn't enough to just like have a seizure and have everybody be like, oh my god. But I guess then you know she was I mean? like, like, then she was like suffering. Now it's on her own. I terms. think this is from like the 1400s. So like you having a seizure is clearly the devil the trying devil, to get out of your yeah. body. Like you're worrying everyone already and like freaking out the fucking livestock. So like, but th then you kind of have to level up to like. You know, I'm throwing myself into a furnace, I guess. She's out of her mind. I feel like, though, if you, if your soul go, like, does all that traveling, like that liminal traveling, um, again, 
It's gonna the just shit change. she would have seen. Yeah. Right. It's just gonna change how you think about everything. Also, point. I do like to sometimes try to apply to the biblical God the same thing as like biblically accurate angels. Mm-hmm. So like if you grew up in the church, anything like I did, you know that the throne room of God is this like the highest, you know, most special part of heaven. And that that's where the seraphim exist. The mm-hmm. angels with six wings mm-hmm. to, to fly, two to cover their face, two to cover their feet. And they literally spend eternity flying around the throne of God and like literally like falling back in ecstasy and their, their wings having to cover their face in the glory of God, singing his praises forever. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, cool. But they're also probably wheels of fire. Yeah. Covered in eyes. And so then, like, is he a really big wheel of fire covered in eyes? Or is he, like, you know, like, so her literally getting brought by angels who, who knows what they look like, to, like, float up in front of the face of God, who then speaks somehow to her, being like, what do you want to do? You want to hang out here? You want to go back? What do you want? You know? I, yeah, kind of kicks the shit out of the burning bush a little bit for me. I'm like, yeah. It also might come down to one of the things where, like, you probably understand the Bible, at least up until that point, real well after coming back. And you're like, mm. I heard about some people hopping in a furnace. Let me just... Share back me, Shaq, and Abednego, who, bitch? And just yeah. jump into the fucking... Yes. It's like, let me just... <laughs> Walk on water? How about under the water, bitch? Here we go. You know, like, she's just, like, out It's that, everybody. but, like, in a haunted house. Yeah. She's yes. doing, like, the spooky version of everything. Uh, you know, yeah. what's cool is that, like, that's, like, a trope. Because, like, the Sun Wukong also gets, like, boiled in a brazier and comes out, like, mm. kind of as, like, a divine thing. Mm, um, okay. So there's, like, definitely, like, a, a survive the kettle. Yeah. Uh, it's like, <laughs> that's the, the in, like, final a test. ancient stories, hmm. um, which is sick. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's also a lot that have the, like, ordeal, survive, like, try, like uh, mm-hmm. trial by ordeal to redeem another. Right, yeah. like, yeah. and so that idea of like she's going through all of these horrific things, um, knowing she can't really die, and she's doing this, you know, and suffering to get souls out of purgatory is like yeah. great, you know. So, mm, what's not great is the God who would put a soul in purgatory, but fine, we won't yeah. look into it too deeply. <laughs> Anyway, that was our enforcement, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. I need to cut it off now because I have no idea how I'm going to edit this out. Good luck. uh, Hopefully get it to 45 and just call it a long one. I don't know. Um, Mm. We went over a lot of states. So there was a lot more bang for your buck than, you know, when we did Joan of Arc. So... Yeah. You just said yeah, bang I, for your buck and call it a long one in like the same sentence. We should stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, yes. Thank you. I'm running low. Um, <laughs> no, my, my Jules battery is dying. So I don't know. I, my life force and my Jules battery are kind of entwined. I think. <laughs> yeah. That's so, a, a sacred object for you. Yeah. It's a relic. I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, all right. Well, thanks again for joining us. If you want to tell us what you think about the show or make suggestions for future episodes or ask us questions about stuff we've talked about, <laughs> you can hit us up on uh, IG or TikTok at when God was queer. You can shoot us an email to when God was queer at gmail.com or you can leave us a voice note and we'll include it in the show at anchor.fm slash when God was queer. Uh, besides that, we're just, it's time for our uh, cacophony of queerness, which I wish we could do in Latin for the, you know, thematic element oh, of the yeah. episode. But yeah, you all couldn't see me, but I was doing some TikTok anime hands at the camera. Um, Thank the gods for that. I yeah. feel like you are really doing the Lord's work. Thanks. Yeah. Might I be try. the Dark Lord. I don't know. Uh, well, be gay. Do be crime. Gay time. Do crime. The gods and the saints and, are always uh, watching. Your you. dead grandma are always watching. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. Ciao. <laughs>